The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. And if this person is listening to my voice, I urge him in the name of law and order to desist from this one-man crusade and turn himself into the police. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast, you a podcast looking at movies in a franchise. One film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and with me is William Thrasher. We're not going to bulldoze these hills. We're going to work with the land. I'm going to tell you something, Paddy. We're in for a death wish. Yeah. We're looking That's at right, Death Paddy. Wish, the original, 1974. Anytime I try to imitate Charles Bronson and Death Wish, it sounds a little bit like Bob Dylan. I don't know why that is. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Bob Dylan prevent, presents the love theme from Death Wish. Mine veers too closely to the uh, Hank Azaria, Charles Bronson imitation. Wasn't there a Simpsons gag where it was a planet full of Charles Bronsons? Oh, no, they were going to go take a holiday to Branson, Missouri to see to see uh, Yakov Smirnoff, and they ended up getting the wrong tickets, and they went to Bronson, Missouri, and it was just a town where everyone, including the babies, were Charles Bronson. Yeah, I have an uncle that looks a little bit like Charles Bronson because of his, his mustache and the large forehead, and uh, so I always think of him when I'm watching Death Wish, and it's a bit strange. Um, yeah, so this came out in 1974, the original based off the book Death Wish by Brian Garfield, no relation to the cat, directed by Michael Winner, produced by Dino De Laurentiis, Hal Landers, Bobby Roberts, screenplay Wendell Mays, starring Charles Bronson, Hope Lange, Vincent Gardenia, William Redfield, um, and as we were talking before the show, a lot of people that later became famous are in, in real bit parts, uh, Christopher Guest is a cop in this, uh, you have Jeff Goldblum is one of the main thugs in the beginning. And there's even a very young Denzel Washington somewhere in here. Uh, music by Herbie Hancock. Um, cinematography, Arthur J. Ornitz. Edited by Bernard Gribble. Uh, this uh, alpha budget of $3.7 million In uh, This made around $22 million, according to Box Office Mojo. And I'm looking at the 1974. Uh, I only have the access to what looks like, uh, yeah, it's just domestic so U.S. and Canada box office for 1974. Guess where Death Wish placed on here? Uh, I'm going to guess uh, fifth. No, 19th. Huh. But uh, to give you some context, it made more money than the James Bond movie that year, which was Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, um, wow. It certainly cost a lot less. Uh, some of the, the top movies of 1974... Or from the beloved Mel Brooks, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein came out in the same year, which I still can't wrap my head around. <laughs> uh, Godfather Part Two also came out that year, and so did something we covered a long, long time ago, Airport 1975. Oh, yeah. That takes me back. Which I think Airport 75 is the one with um, Charlton Heston. Is I... that right? Because I think 77 is the one they go underwater, which is perhaps the stupidest. Yeah, and then the final one was the Concord, which I I would argue that the Concord 
was is technically the stupidest, if only because a plane traveling twice the speed of sound, a guy sticks his head out the window and shoots down an intercontinental ballistic missile with a pistol. Uh, yeah, and it says something when the first film in your series, some of the guest stars are Sonny Bono, and by the end you have like Charo. That really says uh, <laughs> something with the caliber of people you're going for there. Um, but yeah, so Death Wish... I had heard of this a lot as a kid, and of course there's the expression, which is out way before the film, but I think the film popularized it. Oh, this guy has a death wish. Um, well, this this movie, I feel like currently this movie like is a punchline, because I feel like the only time, like I never hear it talked about, I only, I only hear it referenced uh, essentially by comedy nerds or The Simpsons. And that's only because people want to do a Bronson impersonation. Oh, okay. Because, um, I mean, this is a very, very disturbing film. And, and the uh, some of the movies will get more or less disturbing as it goes on, depending on, on, on uh, what happens. Um, but I, I did a little bit of reading, at least of a sample of the novel. And in the oh. novel, the main character is an accountant. And it's a lot of interior monologue. It's a more intelligent sort of thing going on. And... This one, I mean, Charles Bronson had done a lot of films pre- uh, previously with the director Michael Winner, um, including things like uh, Chateau's Land, which he played a half uh, Native American, um, and, and something like The Mechanic, which was remade not too long ago with uh, Jason Statham, did a few of those. Uh, but so, you know, they eventually went with um, Charles Bronson for this, but originally they were thinking of actors like Dustin Hoffman or Jack Lemmon. If you were doing the accountant, I'd say Dustin Hoffman. He could do that kind of mm-hmm. meek chartered accountant thing really well. I mean, isn't the concept of Charles Bronson as an architect just as silly? I I actually I don't think it's silly. Like I think within Okay, well I, I I'll admit I don't exactly buy him as an architect, but choosing to make the character an architect I think provides an interesting contrast because what is an architect but a person who builds and creates spaces for living? But then by the end of the movie, mm. uh, Branson is uh, or Bronson is just a purely a destructive force. Yeah, an architect literally is someone who creates. As you said, they're creating places where people live, and then instead he becomes someone that destroys. Uh, ha- had you seen Death Wish before? I might have seen part of this as a kid on TNT or something. I I must have seen it because I remembered so many scenes while watching it. Uh, so I must have at least seen part of it when when I was when I was really young, but it, this is the first time I remember watching it from beginning to end. Right, it, it is one of those films where um, right off the bat, I was just really blown away by the score by Herbie Hancock, who's a very very famous uh, jazz musician. It's very moody. It's very creepy. It does this weird sort of like noodling around, uh, almost acid jazz thing going on sometimes. It, it really makes it, it feels as gritty as the movie looks. I, I wouldn't mind listening to the soundtrack in isolation just to, to pick all that out. And, and yet there's a handful of moments where I feel like the soundtrack is trying to play for comedy. But because the way those comedic beats in the soundtrack don't quite jive with the images we're seeing on screen, it only makes... It only makes things seem more disturbing. So even if that wasn't deliberate, it does work in favor of the film. And uh, one big thing in the film that opens it that's uh, not in the book from what I understand, but I think it's a real smart choice, is you get to see the life of Paul Kersey 
before his wife and daughter get um, raped and in, in one case murdered. But you get to see him on vacation with his wife in Hawaii, which I think is a real nice grace note to open the picture on. No, it's it's a fun it's a fun little scene, and I remember when when the scene of them in Maui, you know, and he's taking photos of her on the beach when that begins. Like my my initial thought was, oh, this is so cheesy. But by the end of the scene, I totally bought them as a married couple. I mean, this was a really effective device to get us invested in the characters and their relationship. Even the dialogue where I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something like, uh, do you want us to have sex on the beach? And she's like, oh, but the hotel room is just right over there. Uh, I remember when we're more civilized now. And he's like, I remember when we weren't. Like, I don't know. It just felt like a real uh, realistic sort of detail. And, and you get some kind of chemistry between the two, which is really needed for you to care what happens uh, later. Well, in that moment, like the, the dialogue is, is, is playful. And yet... There's a scene where Charles, where uh, where the character of of uh, Paul Kersey uh, is talking with his son-in-law, and they effectively have the same conversation, but with dark undertones. You know, we what do you call us now? Civilized? Well, maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe we're not. Mm. Like it's it, it's it's a neat little counterpoint. There are these neat back and forth seated throughout this film. No, the the screenplay by Wendell Mays, uh, at, at least for this film, I think is. Is pretty good, and you it plays up the um, later on. You get Vincent Gardenia as the cop who, who is sort of like pursuing, a sort of like the Jean Valjean of the piece. If I'm making a Les Mis comparison, which I suppose I just did. Uh, it, so I mean, that it's really quite something that you have all that. And Charles Bronson, I, I had, I swear I've seen him in some of the westerns or the Dirty Dozen or some of those movies, uh, or Once Upon a Time in the West or, or some of those things. And I think without a mustache, he always looks really weird. But with the mustache is the Charles Bronson I know and love, and he has a mustache in all the Death Wish films. Well, it's, it's, it's his iconic look. It, it is, for better or worse. Um, so I something that really jumped out. So after that prologue uh, at Maui, um, we get the opening credits play. Uh, really nice opening credits with that great Herbie Hancock score, and it's just him going through his daily routine, going back to work at the architectural firm with the credits coming by. And something I loved about these opening credits, they effectively do everything with the opening credits they told us not to do in film school. Like, all the opening credits are blocked within the composition of every shot in this way Mm. that you would think would be awkward. But it it makes you feel like a voyeur. It makes you feel like you're peering uh, through or around the credits to see the intimate details of Bronson's daily routine. Well, and they really filmed this picture in in New York, and um, Charles oh, and this Bronson is the didn't want dirty New York. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's important for the context of this movie is New York in the the seventies, which was before I was born, was apparently a real shithole, and it wasn't really until the uh, when Giuliani came in and Mickey Mouse the place up and really cleaned up Times Square uh, to put in the the Disney theaters and all those things. Um, it really took a lot out of the character of New York, but also made it more uh, tourist-friendly in certain parts. It, I mean, it's still, it's a big city, right? There's places you don't want to go at night. I think if you go Central Park at night by yourself, that's not the best idea. Unless um, you're a werewolf. True. And um, <laughs> there's some pretty good YouTube videos of someone had a, a greyhound dog, and they put it in kind of a spider costume, had it hide in the bushes, and then had, had it like jump out to surprise people. 
in Central Park in the middle of the day and people were shrieking and, and so forth. But um, well, well, but yeah. So it, when this was made, I mean, uh, New York was like the most hated city in America and the most despised city in the world. Like no, nobody. Nobody liked New York, and it really comes across in this movie. <laughs> this movie almost has a grudge against that city. Yeah, and the author, Michael uh, Michael Winner, is uh, is British, and um, so maybe that's some of it with the with the way it's shot. But the, the voyeuristic thing, I'm glad you pointed out because um, it, it's something I like about the way this film is shot. It everything feels voyeuristic. It's these very sort of nowadays you say it's very simple uh stationary shots for the most part shot composition and especially when we get i mean the beginning of this movie is very very efficient sort of law and opening credit sequence aside even that you know visually is kind of telling the story of Cursey's day job but within the first 15 minutes um his wife and daughter are, are raped and murdered um and the other one becomes comatose and uh that they do all that so early in the film, I, I found that quite surprising. I thought they were going to wait for that to happen later and build up the characters a bit more. Well, it's, it's kind of your Robert McKee thing. You want your inciting incident as early in the film as possible. But so that, that, that opening scene is difficult to get through on a lot of levels. Uh, you know, uh, well, let's talk about it. I think the way they track her, it, the criminals track her, is really, really clever. Where well, the wife and the daughter are in this upscale a grocery store and they're getting their groceries delivered and their address is just there for the world to see on their cardboard box. Yeah. And they're these, then they're these three punks. Uh, one of them, Jeff Goldblum as freak number one, as he's credited, they're just kind of making general trouble in the supermarket. Nobody's stopping them. They, they see, you know, they saw the, the two women, they see that address. And so they kind of slink through the city and they, they, and this is something I, I kind of like the way this movie plays with like security loopholes uh, because uh, Paul and uh, Paul and his wife, Joanna, their apartment is a really fancy apartment. It has a doorman. It has some level of security. Uh, but the way the way the, the, the punks get in is that they just they use a service entrance and take up a service elevator that is not protected at all. Um, and they pretend to be the delivery boys. They, they bust into the house. Uh, spray can freak is spray painting everywhere. There is there is the sexual assault. We see some some gold bloom ass, and it's pretty it's pretty graphic, brutal, and matter of fact. It's so so the way the way scenes of sexual assaults are filmed. There are a lot of movies where it's almost filmed too nicely. It's almost as if the act is is being fetishized. But in in this movie, yeah. the, the act it's portrayed in an appropriately horrific manner. Uh, but the one, th- but the thing that's so crazy. So being being that the guy committing the assault is Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldbluming it up while wearing a Jughead hat. Knowing who Jeff Goldblum is now, it it lends a comic undertone to the scene that the makers of the film clearly did not intend. But I mean, but, but what he's doing, I think is despicable enough or for me, it overrode the fact uh, the sort of the novelty of, Oh, look at this very, very young, uh, Jeff, Jeff Goldblum, where he, I think he punches one of them in the face, calling them a rich cunt. He, uh, yeah, they use that word like three times in that scene. Yep. Um, which is pretty unusual in a 70s film, uh, let alone today. Uh, and also, you know, as you mentioned, he takes down his pants. He 
uh, forces oral sex, I believe, on the. Um, I don't. I, I think it's the daughter because I think it, the mother. No, it, it is. It is the daughter. The the, the he, wife says, was just beaten up. Right. He says, "I'm going to paint your mouth," which I've never heard that expression before. But that happens to be a name of a track on the soundtrack, which is odd. Yeah, that's god damn. The dialogue is so f- fucked up in in this scene. And in this, again, I have not read the book, but from the research I did, this scene is all from the director, Michael Winner, coming up with it. And he directed the first three Death Wish movies. And at least in the context of the Death Wish films, I can't speak to the rest of his filmography, uh, this guy likes putting rape scenes in there. And they're they're ugly, but I, I appreciate, as you mentioned, how it's done in a long shot. And it just forces you to take it in, and it's gross, and it's... And all that being said, I think the scene is like perhaps two minutes long, and it's not as graphic uh, as it could be. And I'm only saying that because I'm thinking of next week's uh, Death Wish Two. Oh Lord! Um, yeah. So, uh, but I mean, it's although it's a bit you know clumsy and, and forced. If you're gonna get sympathy for a character uh, having his his wife and daughter like raped and murdered and stuff, like as, as far as an inciting incident, that's pretty powerful stuff what's well, it's powerful here but it's 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 a, a cliche in the revenge genre now because of this movie in in, in, lar- in large part yes but um like the and the last the last bit we see of this uh, the scene is that the, the the wife crawling towards a phone to call for help and she she appears to be paralyzed down one side and the daughter rolling, like rolling off the couch, and just kind of flop, flopping on the ground. And if you didn't see her hand move, you would assume that the daughter was dead too. And mm-hmm. we, and and you know, then we go back to Bronson's office. He gets he gets a call that his uh, wife and daughter are in the hospital. Um, and we get this interesting we get this interesting waiting room scene where he's he's in the hospital uh, waiting room with with the son-in-law uh, and this is where the beginnings of a lot of internal tension starts to to seep into the film and one thing that jumped out at me is that the 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 son-in-law uh he he always refers to uh Bronson as dad yes that's that's weird there's a lot of strange Things which I think make it quite interesting, the dynamic between Charles Bronson uh, and his his son-in-law, who, who is, by all means, a, a wet blanket and, and is supposed to be. Um, I'm looking up the character. Do you have the character's name? I'm trying to find it here. Uh, I um, believe uh, I believe that is uh, Jack, Jack okay, Toby. Jack. Yeah, Jack Toby is the son-in-law. Jack Toby, yep, played by, played by Stephen Keats. And, you know, Bronson has a mustache, and uh, although it, it, it's interesting, it mentions, you know, that his character, Paul Kersey, was a conscientious objector in the Korean War. Yeah, he um, didn't get combat duty. He was in a medical unit. Yeah, uh, it's worth mentioning in real life, Charles Bronson was a, a veteran from World War II. Uh, Charles Bronson, even at the, the time this movie came out, was pretty old, man. I mean, this was like 74, and... Uh, Chuck Bronson was uh, born in 21, so he was 50, early 50s? Yeah, it would have right? been in his 50s at this point. Early 50s. Um, which I guess the character really... would have been too, so <laughs> there's some verisimilitude. Right, I mean, Charles Bronson, for a man in his 50s, he always he always kept himself in really good shape. Um, and, and there's something about his face that looks sad. I think that, that works um, for the role, but 
Stephen Keats' Jack Toby is clean shaven, uh, a bit, I think, kind of like nebbish. And uh, his. So when he goes to the hospital, he finds out his wife is dead. He finds out his daughter is comatose. And um, Jack is trying to hide from his father in law, the Charles Bronson character, the extent, I think, to which. His daughter is a, is a vegetable. I, I believe they even use that word in this film, um, which was. Yeah, there's a bit when, especially when Bronson makes his business trip, you know, there, there's a bit where you find out that his son-in-law has been, doesn't want him to worry. And so has been holding back some, some information and that leads to further tensions. So this, so this is the one thing in this movie that, that absolutely did not uh, work for me was, um, <sighs> Was, was was essentially Bronson's daughter at this moment just stops being a character. Anytime she's on screen for the rest of the movie, she's either asleep or sleepwalking. Uh, I think she screams once uh, after this when when um, her husband tries to be intimate with her, which, which admittedly, when you're dealing with trauma, that can happen. But... She's just not a character anymore, and about, and about halfway through, she gets sent to a mental institution, and we never see her again. I I really feel like there should have been a better thread for her character through this movie. Um, in Death Wish Two, they do more with her, um, although she's played by a, a second, a different actress. Uh, and I think what they do in there is a lot more interesting. It, it is kind of a a shame in that you. They don't do a great job building up the wife and the daughter at the beginning. Let's face it. Um, well, the but, wife gets more build up. Uh, exactly. Um, and and it's more, but but still, their presence sort of haunts the film. There's a lot of scenes uh, where in the on the desk at work and whatever, in at his home on his nightstand, he has framed photos of his wife and, and daughter, uh, and that just sort of reminds you of uh, the the horrific rape at the beginning of the film. Uh, so it's. It's it's really something else. I think I, I don't know. I, I agree. I think they could have done more. Um, the I believe is it. Um, I watched all these movies like back to back, so my mind's a little jumbled. But I think it's in this movie they they state that the wife eventually is put into a uh, sort of convent run by nuns. No, do you mean the 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 daughter? Or sorry, the daughter. Yeah, well, the yeah. daughter. Yeah, the mental institution she's she's sent to is a Catholic mental institution, and so yeah, we see we see a group of nuns uh, ushering her into her room. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned, they don't really go much beyond a, an establishing shot or two. Well, it's uh, so funny because they're they're that's even seated because in one of the when when the opening credit sequence we see nuns crossing the street. There are there are there is uh, nun imagery that goes throughout throughout this movie. Which I guess when it, when it comes down to it, um, I do the movie. I think this movie does portray women as a, as a bit, with one notable exception, does portray women as a bit too fragile and a bit too sort of saintly and pure. Because um, again, the only other significant female characters we see are just more nuns. But then we do get later on, much later on in the film, the hat pin lady. I love that scene, but we'll we'll get there when we get there. I want to yeah. go back a bit. Uh, so af- after the hospital, uh, Paul Kersey, the character played by Charles Bronson, is, is a bit shaken up, uh, understandably. Um, and he goes to the funeral, and then he he see a mugger kind of approaches him in uh, in a dark street, and he doesn't have a gun yet. But at home, he made a weapon where you take a sock and you fill it with rolls of quarters, which is a classic, uh, like nineteen thirties kind of self defense. And those goddamn hurt. Yeah. 
and I really like kind of the the humanity of the scene where uh, Paul Kersey is making that at home, and then he tries swinging it around, and he like loses his balance. Well, he whacks his hand, and and he really reacts to that pain. Yeah, it, 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 I thought that was a sort of realistic detail, and his little weapon does enough for the mugger to run away. And as we see in this film later on, as he get ar- he gets armed. Why didn't they have the plot of this movie be he gets revenge after the people that raped and killed his wife? Oh, yeah, that's the fascinating thing Yeah, yeah, is that Jeff Goldblum and his gang, we never see or hear from them again after that scene. But I I think that's deliberate because I think I think there is a, 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 a note in this film that revenge and redemptive violence is is hollow. And I, I think that's that's no no more so than I I think it helps that that he never faces off against the people that that he is very justifiably might want revenge against or would want revenge against you know his his violence is directionless I mean he ends the movie as a serial killer yeah I mean he comes off as like a psychopath like had the plot been he he's going after the three guys that got his wife and daughter. Uh, that would have made, I, I think that would have been more more satisfying. I think for the audience, it would have been a more straightforward story. But I, I do applaud them, and maybe it's the in the book. I'm not really sure um, that he just goes after random people. But it's also like, could it all be in his head? What if the people he's killing aren't really muggers? What if they're just regular civilians? Like, I mean, this isn't a movie that tries to be that psychologically deep or twisty. But that was something I was sort of thinking that just the way he goes after all of these people, it, it's well. Well, this movie, it tracks a good man's decline, but beyond that, more so than a lot of other revenge movies, this movie is, even if only on a surface level, willing to engage in a lot of issues related to the morals and ethics of violence. But before his, um, you know, gun crazy phase starts proper, he goes to Arizona to uh, try to see a big client to to sell him on this uh development on a hill yeah they they feel like it would be a good good to for him to get out of the city for a bit and they're having this difficult time with the client yeah there's this there's i mean he he might as well be a texas cattle rancher but i do kind of like him he's this sort of cheerful good old boy who he wants to develop this land as a you know a place for people to live and they use this to help play up the the differences between the suburbs versus a densely populated urban urbanized area um, but the big conflict there is, you know, he wants he wants his development to conform to the land. He doesn't want mountains bulldozed. He doesn't want a lot of trees cut down. And it, I mean, the way that's resolved is Bronson does find a way to design a neighborhood that conforms to the land, but that gives everybody privacy with the mountains, but also you know, gives everybody a yard for, as he says, children and dogs. And like it's it's. It's showing the environment that that Bronson, an ideal environment that Bronson could make if he doesn't end up devoting himself entirely to the violence later on. But this does lead into this does lead into the firearms, and I love that that discussion they have in the shooting range because you learn so much about the characters and their their philosophies and backgrounds, and it feels completely natural and not expository. Not just that, but as. Uh sort of as they're they're doing uh you do sort of social stuff with clients to try and sell them on something they go to this like wild west recreation uh shootout thing 
and how that's like sort of like a cartoon fictionalized version of what you'll see Kersey do later in the film in New York when he's actually shooting people. Well, I thought was pretty effective. Well, it's so it's so brilliant because it's 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 showing you this is what movies tell you violence is. We're going to yes. show you what violence really <laughs> is later. But the other, I think, brilliant counterpoint is you know keep in mind Bronson he really made a name for himself in westerns. At it is my understanding that by this point in the seventies. Bronson was written off as a washed-up Western star. And so, yeah, and so it's a bit... Essentially, this scene is showing what Bronson is leaving behind, because for better and mm. worse, this movie is going to define the rest of his career up until he retires from film. Yes, the number of movies that have death in the title, even ones that aren't Death Wish uh, after this <laughs> one, are, are not insignificant. Um but I think in the, in the shooting gallery, you know, they're talking, they're talking back and forth, and you know, the 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 southern guy is making the point about how you should have the right to defend yourself, and and Bronson really tells this touching story about how you know, well, you know, I do know my way around firearms. Uh, my father was was a hunter. I know how these things work. Then one day he died in a hunting accident. Somebody thought he was a deer rustling in the woods. Uh, you know, I my mother then from there and all my mother raised me, and I never touched a gun ever again. And, and and that also you know ta- that's also when he talks about how he was a conscientious objector in Korea and so was in a medical unit instead of a combat unit, um, and like there there is so much packed into that scene. I, I agree. It's 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 well done. It's smart. Uh, you you just get and you know as he prepares to go home, uh, the the guy is trying to sell to uh, Jane Chill. Uh, gives him a little uh, a little gift. I mean, you could never do this today um, with the airport security being what it is. Well, he even addresses that. He says, are you going to check that bag? Of course. Well, here you go. Because <laughs> he knows yeah. he's not going to let it. Even back then, they're not going to let him carry that on the plane. Right. And he goes home, he opens it up, and it's this uh, this vintage gun that they were looking at earlier. This re- uh, Yeah, this revolver with a full cleaning kit in a nice uh, case. And there's actually, there's a plaque on the case. I could never see what that plaque said. So I don't know if it's just his name or if there's a message engraved on it. I, f- I feel like we should have seen that. Right. I'm, I'm not sure what that is either. Um, and, you, you know, when Charles Bronson, he sees the gun, he looks at it, and then he, he has this very nice peacoat jacket or, or that he wears, and he, he slips the gun in there. Like, you know, as an audience member exactly what what is coming next yeah and he he does you know someone tries to mug him again and then he just uh while he's uh you know out 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 in a park late at night and he he just flat out shoots the guy and that's what gets the ball rolling from that point on bronson spends his nights wandering the streets in different neighborhoods looking for trouble and when people try to and attack him he just guns them down Sort of like a real-life Batman, except without the bats. <laughs> yeah, a real-life lethal Batman who just murders people. That's right, yeah. Real-life Joker, I don't know what he say, but I think after he shoots the first guy, you have a pretty powerful scene where, in my opinion, where he goes home, and the music is really tense and weird, and he just drops to his knees and vomits. Well, and yeah, I mean, sickened. He... He reacts to his first kill pretty intensely. Now, this... I so I I I know a lot of people um uh in the military uh 
and and in in some of the the circles I run in, and I I have been told that this is not uncommon. That when if when you take your first life, your body reacts to it in a very intense mm. way, um, and and so I'm I very much I'm glad that that scene is in this film. Yeah, I think had that scene not been in there, this at the end of the day, I do think Death Wish is an exploitation picture. But you have enough notes like that and the stuff with him and the wife at the beginning that it's um, there's some intelligence here, <laughs> even though you know it's in the later half of the film, uh, Paul Kersey is just killing people left and right. You get the feeling. That if he went to a uh, McDonald's and they gave him a raw order, he would shoot the person behind the counter. It 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 gets cl- close to that. I could al- I could almost see it because that's I guess that's the that that is the one interesting thing is that everyone he shoots is someone who is is threatening violence or in the process of of committing a crime. It's it's it is rather interesting that they they judge him for that. They don't wait for him to cross a line and kill an innocent person before judging him. Like I don't think the movie, even though it is in many ways an exploitation film, I don't think the movie approves of the fact that he's he's killing crim- people even if they're criminals. What if you had a scene where maybe by accident he shoots and kills his uh, son-in-law? That hmm, maybe not in this movie, but maybe in the sequel. Yeah. Although, although I could, I could, you know what? Now that I think about it, though, I could totally see that the son-in-law, like something happens with the daughter, so the son-in-law comes over, like as in the middle of the night, using his key to get into the apartment. He doesn't phone ahead because he wants to say it in person. Bronson assumes mm. it's someone breaking in and just guns him down. Okay, and that I could see that scene working in this film. But that is not a, a scene uh, we get. Um, but we do get a lot of st- we do get a lot of stuff with the New York Police Department, and it is fascinating seeing like their them investigating these murders and 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 what their police work is. And I love that that affectation where like the head investigator he has all these respiratory problems. Every scene he has a different respiratory problem. One scene he's sneezing yeah, all the time. One scene he's coughing all the time. One scene he's always using an inhaler. One scene he's smoking a cigar constantly. Then he's back to sneezing all the time. He's played by a great um, actor of stage and screen, Vincent Gardenia, who I know from playing Mr. Mushnick in the 80s musical version of Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, that's right. I mean, he, he is such a perfect New York type. He's got this great expressive face. He's just got this perfect I live in New York accent. I'll tell you what we're looking for. We are looking for a man with combat training, so a veteran of World War II, Korea, Vietnam. He he is really good in this. I could watch a spin-off film that is just him trying to solve a crime. Well, and and that you see him uh do all of this when you go and uh it's in an age before you, they were really using computers that much as far as criminal investigations. And so just all the paper piled up on the desk everywhere, and they got the little pieces of yarn connecting everything. It, it's it's really neat as they crack down on him. Um, and it, 
I think it's more effective in in some ways that you see the police investigation. I was reminded a little bit of the relationship you get in uh, the original Rambo film, First Blood, between Rambo and... Um, Troutman? Not Troutman, the one that um, Paul Dennehy plays. Oh! I don't recall the character name, but yeah, I know who you mean. It's Teagle or something, but yeah, uh, anyhow, it's... That, that it it makes it a bit more personal that there's a specific character that's kind of leading these investigations as opposed to cops just randomly showing up at these scenes. But you do you do see uh, Kersey is at home. Uh, at one point, it's really bizarre. He has uh, Jack over for supper to have liver and spaghetti, of all things. Uh, <laughs> and, and, he, and he's playing, like, jazz music blaring in the apartment, and he repainted everything so, like, it's bright orange. It's, like, very 70s-looking. Yeah, because there, there was graffiti that Spray Can Punk put on the wall, including a, a swastika, which there's no indication that the gang are white supremacists. Uh, that could just be something that they spray-painted just to piss people off. But, but yeah, he repaints the apartment, and he repaints the apartment this horrible artificial orange. It's like it's like the orange dye they put in artificial orange drink is what the walls are covered. And the moment that scene began, I'll, I'll, like I just said out loud, "How do you like the new paint job? The color symbolizes my madness." Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, but that that you get to see uh, Charles Bronson smile on a scene, I think, is kind of nice. Um, and, and he's happy because he's completely given into the violence at that point. Not only that, he collects all the newspaper clippings and watches the news in the bar and just is, like, smiling. Like, Smugly smiling. That's, sm- that's yeah. me, yes. I yeah. killed those three people in the Central Park. Even, even while one of the police detectives is in that bar. Yeah, it's like, ballsy. It, it, it's amazing. <laughs> Like, I mean, those are some pretty damn effective scenes, but we do finally get some some violence with some really real consequences. Um, Bronson is uh, riding the subway with some groceries and someone tries to mug him. So he shoots he shoots the mugger, but he he loses his uh, he loses his, his groceries. That's like the first clue is this grocery receipt. But also he gets stabbed during during, you know, one of his attempts to, to kill a mugger. And it's a when we see him go back to his apartment, it's a pretty graphic stab wound. I mean, we see some depth to that wound, and it's and it's not cheap exploitation blood. It is Herschel Gordon Lewis type, vivid red, thick staining blood. It is closer to real blood than you will see in most movies. Yeah, um, in, in that he's working on fixing himself. You know that he was. In the Korean War as a medic, I guess that's how he knows uh, how to deal with that. that. Um, But I mean, later too, he uh, he ends up going to the hospital, right? Well, that that's uh, that's uh, at the end. Yep. Uh, But uh, so so the uh, so yeah so the the receipt from the groceries. Uh, is what allows the police to sort of narrow in on things. And there's another uh, scene where we get caught up with the investigation. One of the police officers in this scene is smoking a pipe. Like, there's a lot of casual smoking in this movie, but that there's a guy at the meeting smoking a full-on pipe. It's great. Um, It was the 70s. They were smoking all over the place. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, in, in, In hospitals. In hospitals? Yeah, in hospitals and airplanes. Uh it, it was common. Uh, smoking used to be a much bigger thing. Um, 
Uh, but but he's he's breaking it down that like you know okay so we we've there's this we've tracked it down like all the seem to most of the killings seem to be happening within a certain number of blocks of this grocery store uh and like even one of the women officers is pointing out well you you know like this many blocks is that's about as far as I'm willing to walk for groceries and like everything kind of lines up um and they kind of na- they narrow it down and they Bronson fits the profile, except he doesn't have, you know, a criminal record, but they figure they might as well check. So they put Bronson under surveillance. There's a neat, there's a neat scene where the, uh, uh, there's a neat scene where, where, uh, uh, Gardenia, like, sneaks, with a locksmith, breaks into Bronson's apartment after he goes out. That's when he finds, uh, the blood. And I love that he, that's clearly a search he's executed without a warrant, because we learned that the justice system in the city is also some, somewhat corrupt. Like, crime is down because of these vigilante killings, but they don't necessarily want people to know that because they don't want people taking the law into their own hands. But also, like, the district attorney and the mayor have given kind of tacit approval to these vigilante killings. And we see uh, a news clip, um, I think it's on the bar or something, where Charles Bronson is, is watching people have been inspired by his vigilante killings and are chasing off muggers and fighting back. There's a woman with a hairpin that, um, it, it looks like that, that actor that isn't even like a trained actress. It just looks like someone off the street, but she does a real kind of salt of the earth sort of discussion of, of what happens. And then you see footage of her taking out the bobby pin, this old woman taking out a bobby pin and chasing these guys away. Which, to be fair, how did they get that on film? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a movie, but uh, true. But like, but yeah, her whole thing is well. I've got this old hat pin, and when they tried to mug me, I just pulled out my hat pin, and I I just started jabbing at them, and like, and everybody is kind of cheering her on, you know, and and she just could not be she could not be happier that she's on the news telling the story of how she fought off her her three assailants. You do see with the police investigation how they keep track of all the bullets that they get out from all the bodies, and the bullets are all matching. Um, so they're starting to uh, to track them down. But eventually, because I guess because Kersey is an old man, or, or he gets wounded, keeps on getting wounded, he uh, gets taken to the hospital. Yeah, because he's he's been told anonymously on the phone that he's under surveillance. You know, Gardenia has been given orders to kind of make the killings go away, just convince him to take it easy. But yeah, uh, Bronson, while under surveillance, goes out for one for goes out for you know one one more killing spree, for lack of a better term. Uh, but this time, all three of the muggers have guns, and so he finally gets shot uh, himself. He takes some some serious wounds. He gets rushed uh, to the hospital. Gardenia finds the gun, uh, which is handed to him by Christopher Guest as Officer Jackson Riley. Um, and Gardenia meet, uh, visits uh, Bronson alone in the hospital and just kind of like tells him, OK, you, you can hear me. If you leave, t- if you just leave town, I will throw this gun in the East River and you will get away scot free. And then you're not the city's problem anymore. Um and Bronson's like, what, I got 24 hours to leave? No, just just leave. Um, and, he ta- and he takes the deal. The vigilante is never the vigilante is never caught, so he's never martyred, which is what Gardenia's really worried about. 
Um, but you know, the city, you know, people can still believe that there's that anyone could turn out to be that avenging figure. So presumably the mugging rates will stay suppressed. Uh, he's kind of in a sick way. He's kind of a folk hero. And then that sets us up for our epilogue where since his architectural firm has a lot of offices across the country, he takes a transfer out of the big city. Right. Well, out of one big city to another, he he moves to Chicago. Well, he goes to Chicago, which in itself is still a big city. Um, but he sees the, these guys are, are harassing a woman, and he uh, he he scares him off, and he, he takes out his hand and points it like. Well, no, he helps he helps guy. the woman up. He doesn't scare him off exactly, but like, yeah, he turns around with this great weird smile on his face and just kind of points and does a little finger gun gesture, and that's our freeze frame. That's how the movie ends. That's the most famous shot from this movie. It was even used in the trailers. Um, it, it it's the implications of that are really creepy. I I almost, yeah, because you think he's going to just do the same thing in the new city. And yet when we get to Death Wish 2, uh, next episode, he'll be in Los Angeles. or I think he's in San Francisco or something. He's in California. He's not in Chicago at all. Well, I mean, it's like I said that he he begins the movie as as a family man and architect. He ends the movie as a serial killer. I mean, he is clearly going to kill again. And he's and he's happy about it. Yeah, it's um pretty pretty disturbing stuff, uh, and uh, and that's Death Wish. You know, I think it's uh, you can I mentioned Rambo earlier, and I think you can make some connections there. And that this first film, just like the first Rambo movie, First Blood, is more of like a real drama uh, than kind of the later films become. Um, Charles Bronson is okay. I don't think he makes or breaks. The movie, um, and you could see what, you know, had it been sort of a more literate script or, or something. Uh, I could even imagine like a, a Richard Dreyfus in this role, maybe. In not not at the time, maybe Richard Dreyfus in the late eighties. True. Um, or, yeah. I mean, I guess that's the, that's the like I I really, despite some you know disturbing imagery, I really enjoyed this. I think, and I think in in large part it's because th- this movie is is willing to judge its protagonist's actions, if only if only on a surface level. I don't think this movie is on Bronson's side. I think it's just chronicling his decline. I, I can see that in just sort of the the disaffected way that it's filmed. There's a lot of long shots, um, and, and yet sometimes is, is, sometimes the angles are just so it helps with that voyeuristic angle. It feels like we're peeking over something or peeking around something. Yeah, everything is just uh, a lot of very matter of fact things uh, in this movie are going on. So there you go. Um, yeah. So I mean, I, I I like this film. I, I I would give it a sequel. Yes, I think it's it, it is disturbing, and yet compared to some other films in the series, the the rape scene is almost tasteful. I, I hate saying well, that because of how compared to what we're gonna get later, it's it is uh, it mm. is technically speaking as intense as it is, it's milder than what we're gonna see later. And that they have the note of them. I don't know why it disturbs me so much, but that they spray paint the daughter's ass is just such a, I don't know, like they, they're already, you know, ripping her clothes off and stuff. Well, they, 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 they try, they, they try to pack in like every 
grotesque physical yeah. violation yeah. possible, like other than outright causing someone to bleed. Well, I guess no, the house, the, the 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 wife does bleed. Never mind. Yeah, like it's it's almost every form of violence is perpetrated in that one scene. Yeah, and it's a uh, it's a lot to take. Um, but that that being said, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed the picture. Um, and if if I was going to pitch a sequel to this, I like. Uh, I'm going to steal your idea, Thrasher. I like the idea of uh, Lieutenant Frank Ochoa, played by uh, Vincent Gardenia. Uh, maybe have him do uh, have his own uh, like a spinoff on him, and he hears like maybe you know you continue that Kersey's in Chicago. He hears that Kersey's in Chicago, so he he's transferred. Uh, not not just to investigate him, but uh, to basically be his roommate, and so you have kind of an odd couple thing of mm. um, Kersey and Ochoa living together. And Ochoa, whenever Kersey is like uh, in the bathroom or at work or something, he's like fishing around for clues, trying to get proof that Kersey is doing it again. <laughs> just imagining all the characters of this movie sitting around a table playing cards, and Bronson says, "You know, I like the way." I like the way Felix makes these sandwiches with the crust cut off. Exactly. And uh, you, you would have, um, I think the ending, you would go for something ironic, like Ochoa is being mugged, but Kersey saves him. And then Ochoa drops to his knees and starts weeping. I was wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> Will that be de- Death Wish 2, Wish Harder? Um, Death Wish Death Wish 2 Chicago style and there'd be a pizza motif oh lord so I uh, so I was gonna pitch uh, a uh, Lieutenant Frank Ocha uh, Ochoa doing uh, investigations, but since you've already got that covered, uh, I want to do a movie that further in- investigates just kind of the decline that comes with redemptive violence. So, the the movie I would uh, the the sequel that I would do still set in New York, um, and a guy uh, a guy fishing uh, happens to just. You know, you know those people who just like fish in the East River, not to really eat anything, but just to fish. Well, a person yep. just fishing in the East River pulls up the gun, pulls up Bronson's ah, gun that Frank Ochoa yeah. threw in the river, and he's like, "Huh? Well, this is this is a weird thing. I wonder." And he wants to turn it into the police, like, "Well, I guess could be evidence in a crime because he wants to be a good citizen." Uh, but the police won't take it because they know what it really is and they don't want the books opened on the vigilante case. Um, however, the guy, however, this, this fisherman, uh, or hobbyist fisherman, he also ends up in a situation where he's mugged and he uses the gun to defend himself. In this case, pistol whipping the mugger. Uh, and he gets pulled into the world of redemptive violence too. Uh, the problem is he's a person that remembers the vigilante killings and, kind of romanticizes that figure so he really quickly uh he cleans the gun loads it starts doing what bronson does except he's not 
good with a firearm. He's not a crack shot the way Bronson is. He's just an asshole with a gun, and he ends up doing as much harm to the innocent uh, as he does uh, to to the criminals. Um, we will deal with collateral damage. We will deal with in, like we will deal with innocent people getting shot because he tries to shoot someone mugging someone else, and he hits the victim instead. And the violence continues to spin uh, out of control. Uh, the the police are thrown into an uproar because the the bullets they're pulling from the bodies match the bullets of of the vigilante's gun. Um, and I figure just because you know, just because it kind of has to, it needs to begin where it ends. So it has to end in a confrontation uh, between the police and this new vigilante on the banks of the East River. Uh, and in this case, the vigilante is going to end up uh, is going to end up uh, falling to the East River and drowning rather than getting taken by the police. Uh, and you can only hope that the uh, the the gun stays at the bottom of the East River with him this time. And what's the name of it? Uh, this is the uh, vi- uh, De- uh, Death Wish Two Copycat. Copycat. I-, I was thinking for mine set in Chicago. The tagline would be "He's deep dishing out violence." <laughs> oh my lord! So yeah. Um, on to uh, on to what you're watching. I I recently tried a. Uh, did a seven-day trial of Shudder, because you've been talking about it, Thrasher. Oh, yeah. And I watched a four-hour documentary on Hellraiser 1 and 2 called Leviathan. Oh, man. Um, the I think it's called Dead Mouse Productions or something, but the fellas that did this film are, have been working on something called RoboDoc, about a, a documentary in RoboCop, and they've been working on a, a more high-profile documentary on the 90s It miniseries. Uh, in which they talked to Tim Curry. But, I mean, regardless, this one, for um, Hellraiser 1 and 2, they talked to everyone except for Clive Barker for some reason. Um, and then also the main actress, they can't get to speak to them either, so they have to speak in vintage clips. Oh. Ashley Lawrence. Uh, and, and, and that's a bit too bad. But I I kind of thought they'd talk about the other sequels, but um, they only do, like, in the last 10 minutes, they sort of do a funny montage where the people are like... Uh, just saying what shit the rest of the sequels are, which I don't necessarily agree with. Well, I guess, um, like, aside from Doug Bradley, isn't he the only person from the first two films involved in the sequels? Uh, the... Oh, it's Peter or something or other. Uh, the guy that wrote the second film also wrote the third and maybe the, a draft of the fourth. Oh. Uh. Um, who's not Clive Barker, but it's one of his friends. And, uh... Otherwise, they, they also were mentioning, um... It, one thing I thought was very funny is they talked to the the actor who plays the um, the evil doctor in Hellraiser Two Hellbound. I think it's it's not Chalmers. It's a uh, something with the C H is the character's actor's name or is the character. Anyhow, they talked to him, and he says he had a choice at the time between doing Hellraiser Two and playing the lead in a production of King John at the Royal Shakespeare uh, Theater. And he chose Hellraiser 2, and he doesn't uh, regret that, because it's a movie people still talk about, and no one talks about that particular production of <laughs> King John, one of many, I'm sure, uh, from the, the Royal Theater. But I don't think that would the documentary be worth my time? 
I think so. I don't think it needs to be like four and a half hours. Um, but yeah, uh, one thing that's sort of nice is it's split up into two parts. And the first part is for the first movie and the second part's for the second movie. So um, at, at least give the first part a try. Uh, I think it was uh, pretty neat. And um, yeah, to see everyone uh, everyone talk about it. Well, by an amazing coincidence, the film I saw is a movie that opened two weeks before Death Wish. Oh? Uh, I I watched Roger Corman's answer to Fritz the Cat, Down in Dirty Duck. Have you heard of this movie? No, it's a cartoon, I assume. Yes, it, it is animated. There is some mixed media and pop art flourishes. Um, it This is a... This is a okay. This is a bizarre movie. Uh, I would say only watch it if you are a fan of great trash. Uh, I cannot imagine anyone else getting much out of out of this film except as a historical curiosity. But um, you know, Fr- Fritz the Cat being being a, a huge and notorious film, uh, Roger Corman decided he wanted to get in on the what was they thought was going to be an adult animation boom. So this movie called. Uh, Called Down in Dirty Duck about uh, about kind of a, 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 a nebbish milksop uh, insurance claims adjuster named Willard, who due to uh, a series of events becomes the gets gets partnered up with a with a duck, uh, and they have this weird psychedelic adventure through uh, the American heartland that has it has a twist ending that is impossible to predict and is not set up in any way. Um, but it's got racism. It's got homophobia. It's got, it's got animation that is so terrible. It becomes beautiful. The other weird thing is it, it is starring and has music by uh, Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, who they, they, they uh, were the musical duo that recorded under the name Flo and Eddie. Uh, one of them was from the Turtles. The other was from the Mothers of Invention with Frank Zappa. This, this, is, a, this is a fucked up movie that must be seen to be believed, but you probably shouldn't look directly at it. Um, the music is weird. Uh, a lot of the music, like the music is, it, the music is weird, but I will say there's one piece of music in this movie that is right, that is brilliant. There's a scene where the, where Dirty Duck takes Willard to a brothel and there's this, there's this musical number about the brothel is, oh, what was it? Uh, you could have June, Jenny, or Janine, or maybe all three, if that's your scene. And it's just this song about all the things you could do in a brothel if you have enough money. <laughs> well, well, well. Uh, so I assume there was not a Dirty Duck 2. Uh, this this is the interesting thing. According, uh, according to, I've got a guide to cult films. According to the guide to cult films, a sequel was planned because this was so cheap to make and it was assumed that the adult animation cra- was going to become a, a legit craze, but it, it never got made. I, I, I'm curious to know what that would be. I love the tagline on the poster, Matter than Daffy, dumber than Donald, more existential than Howard. More existential than Howard? Yes. That, that, that's a big word. Huh. Well, okay. it's sort of, it's existential in the same way that Easy Rider is existential. 
So that make when you say that, that makes me think the ending has some kind of social commentary that it doesn't earn. No, no, not really. I mean, there, there is no social commentary in this film. Um, uh, it's it's just a, it's just a big it's just a big mess of the movie. Uh, also, I think the most uses of the f word. No, not that f word. The other f word uh, that I have ever heard in a film. So, any uh, celebrity voices in this, or is it just uh, aside uh, aside from uh, Mark Mark Wolfman and uh, and uh, Howard Kalen? I actually I don't think so. Let me double let me double check. Uh no, I don't think so. I think that I think that's it. Most there's only like. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's only eight people credited as doing voices, and most of them are doing quintuple duty. So no, there, there's a, nobody huge yeah, in here. Is this streaming anywhere? It sounds like the kind of thing that would be out of print and expensive. Uh, I believe, I, I think I watched it on uh, Tubi TV, uh, the Tubi TV app. Hmm. Yeah, no, that that is some interesting stuff. I was uh, watching some of um, the ninth configuration on there. Huh. Yeah, so I, I, I can't I can't endorse this movie, but as a historical curiosity and as a complete cinematic misfire, it is fascinating. But you're gonna have to be prepared to deal with a lot of, uh, and I guess that's the other thing. This is how messy the movie is. There's a lot of racism and homophobia depicted in this movie. And I'm not sure what whose side the movie is on. I would presume that it's on the anti-homophobia, anti-racism side because of Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, but I'm not sure because it's so sloppy in the way it tries to play those things for comical effect. Well, speaking of um, animation sort of from that era, I saw on Twitter uh, people were asking Mark Hamill about his role... Um, Voicing oh, in the fairy in Wizards, yeah. Yeah, I and saw said, that you know, too. Uh, did you? Yeah, and he said he had not seen the film until pretty recently, which uh, isn't uncommon. And he was, um, he wasn't surprised he had a small part because I think he must have been in there just for like an hour in the recording booth or something. But th- he also was angry to see, uh, maybe not angry, but annoyed to see his name is misspelled in the end credits. Yeah, I <laughs> remember that. So, uh, so there you go. Um, God, and that would have been like when he was still doing. That was in his like pre-Star Wars voice acting days. I could totally see that. Like he, that was just a bit part. Like nobody knew he was going to be huge <laughs> that year. That might have been his first voice acting gig. Um, I know his first voice acting later gig he would was do in the, the Hanna Barbera "I Dream of Genie" animated series. Oh no! Yeah, which he sang the theme song. <laughs> yeah. It was it was meant to be a demo track, and then they just used it. You can tell it was meant to be a demo track. Oh, uh, it's it's very very rough uh, sounding. Um, all right, well let's do our sequel scene here. Why don't you uh, set, why yes. don't you set the stage, Mister Thrasher? This all right, a, let me uh, let me just bring up our uh, 
bring up our dialogue here. Okay, so so this so this scene the, the, early on in the movie, there's a lot of really quick back and forth, casual political uh, discussions, including the including very early on when when Kersey is referred to by one of his coworkers as a real bleeding heart type. So this this scene is after this scene is I believe after uh, Kersey's wife's funeral. Uh, this is Kersey talking with his uh, son-in-law. Uh, Jack Toby, just kind of about about violence. Uh, who would you like to be? Uh, I'd like to be Paul Kersey this time. <laughs> okay, I guess that means I'm I'm Jack. Okay, um, so is this at the funeral or after? I, be- I believe this is like after. I think this 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 yeah this this is after. I think they're like in in his apartment after the funeral. Oh yeah, because I think this is before he goes. Kersey goes back to his own apartment. After the, because okay. uh, it implies he's been staying with his daughter and son-in-law immediately following uh, the assault. Right. So, um, okay. Nothing to do but cut and run, huh? What else? What about the old American social custom of self-defense? If the police don't defend us, maybe we ought to do it ourselves. We're not pioneers anymore, Dad. What are we, Jack? Well, what do you mean? I mean, if we're not pioneers, uh, what have we become? What do you call people who, when they're faced with a condition or fear, do nothing about it? They just run and hide. Civilized? No. So yeah, that's that's the uh, the depth of some of the discussions of violence within the dialogue. Well, there, there's even something where I think Kersey's at work, and uh, I think he, they called him Bleeding Heart, and then he says, like, we should just shoot anyone we see, like, which is what he ends up doing in the film. <laughs> Like these yeah. counter these point counterpoints arguments, uh, they're interesting, but they're not subtle. Well, that's the interesting thing is that his coworker effectively gets his wish, his death wish, um, and I kind of wish, and like the closest we get to seeing his coworker react to that is like the coworker kind of like sort of smiles, pointing at the screen. I think when they're bringing the the hat pin lady on. Oh no, not the hat pin lady on when when they're uh, the people on the the news in the bar are discussing uh, when the police are discussing the investigation into the vigilante killings. Like all his facial expression seems to communicate is he's interested in the vigilante killings, but it doesn't indicate whether he approves of them or not. Yeah, um, there, there's a real um, that just makes me think of. I think the funniest reaction to violence in a movie theater I've ever seen. Uh, violence on screen, not real violence. It was uh, years ago I saw Inglorious Bastards in the theater. And sitting in front of us was a, a woman, uh, I, I think in her, her 60s, so old enough to have been probably maybe a child when World War II was happening. Um, I'm not good with the math. Maybe she was in her 70s. Anyhow, you know, they start killing the Nazis, right, as they do in that movie. And every time she kills... And the Nazi, she got so into it, she stood up on her feet and started clapping every time they killed a Nazi. And then <laughs> nice. the, the the Eli Roth character, uh, I think they called him the Bear Jew, uh, <laughs> takes out his, you know, baseball bat, some very blunt weapon, and just mashes this guy's face into a pulp. And then she says, and then this woman in front of me said, oh, Jesus, and then sat back down. So, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's where she drew it went the line. too far. Blunt force trauma, repeated blunt force trauma to the head. To these squishy kind of Fangoria effects. Uh, it, was, it was a bit too much, but I saw that and like, hmm. 
Oh, and I do want to give credit where credit's due. I forgot to mention this. Down and Dirty Duck was directed by Charles Swenson. He has a very long, interesting career in animation, but people listening, I think there's a decent chance they're going to know him most as the creator of the uh, Cartoon Network series Mike, Lou, and Og. Oh, okay. Hmm. Um, so next week we'll be talking about Death Wish 2, which this first one came out in 74, this next one came out in 82, so eight years later. (laughs) I guess America was just clamoring for more Death Wish. As the poster says, Bronson is loose again, the poster also (laughs) says, when murder and rape invade your home and the cops can't stop it, this man will, his way. Well, that's actually on the poster. Yes. Damn. For For Death Wish 2. And in this one, for his look, he has a beanie on, um, or kind of a skull cap thing going on. So there you go. Well, we'll break down that that uh, poster a bit uh, in more detail next week. I, I do would like to point out on the poster for the original Death Wish, it says Vigilante City Style, Judge, Jury, and Executioner. <laughs> you think Death Wish was uh, an inspiration for Judge Dredd? Uh, I'm going to say yes, because the original Judge Dredd comics, they are in part a satire of the way uh, the way violence is portrayed in excessive media. I mean, a big a big part of the original character premise is what if police officers were legally empowered to do all the crazy shit that they do in American action movies? Hmm. Yeah, OK, that makes sense. Uh all right, so um, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, follow the show on Twitter at SequelCast2. Uh, go to Apple Podcast or whatever podcast app you use to hear us on, and leave a, leave a nice review. That would be good. We haven't got one of those in a while. I always like to see uh, what the audience thinks. Uh, best way to download the show is either through Apple Podcast or SequelCast2.com, or you can listen to us on Stitcher. Don't uh, bother with face- the iTunes, because that won't be there by the time this episode comes out. Isn't that weird? Although I think all that means... So uh, what Thrasher's speaking about is uh, reportedly Apple, I guess with their next big up- OS updates, is going to take off iTunes, but instead it'll be more like uh, the phone, I guess, where the, it, music is its own app, movies is its own app. People are wondering, is podcast still going to be its own app? Um which it has been on the phone for a while, so maybe they'll just make the Mac OS desktop be more similar. Do you have any strong thoughts about that? I, if I could get like, like I iTunes years ago, I it was great that I could do music, that I could I could rips I could rip CDs, I could download music, and I could listen to podcasts on on one mostly functioning app. Um, I don't like keeping track of too many programs, so I kind of I don't like that I've now got to deal with so many different channels for different audio media. Each of which uh, are now sixty-four bit applications, which take up more RAM and processing power, mm. and require faster computers. Blah blah blah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of essays uh, online of people like, well, "What happens to all the music I bought in iTunes?" I don't think that's really being affected here. It's they're they're just more moving, it's more branding, changing the name from one to the other, and, and as we said, splitting it up into separate applications. But yeah, we will um, we'll just have to see what happens. So uh, next week uh, we'll talk about Death Wish 
two for sequel cast two. This is Matt. Uh, and this is Thrasher. Saying, "Give me your money, honey." I get a wish. I think it's a death wish. Hey, I wish I was dead.